0: Hi everyone, I'm Suzanne Delahunty and this is Freedom Hunters, a podcast about inspiring people who have escaped the rat race and found freedom in their dream career. We talk about their career journeys, how they changed career, the challenges they've faced along the way, and what success means for them now that they're doing what they love. Today's inspiring guest on Freedom Hunters is Emily Johnston, blogger, columnist and digital content creator. Originally from South Carolina in the US, Emily moved to London straight out of university to pursue her dream of forging a career in the art world. Early on, she found a role at an art auction house and ended up in a PR role. But it was when she started her fashion industry news blog in her spare time that life started to change for Emily. In this episode of Freedom Hunters, I talk to Emily about how she transitioned from her corporate PR role to her current career, which has involved the continued evolution of her hugely successful fashion and lifestyle blog, Fashion Foie Gras. Emily shares with me the challenges of going freelance, how she stays true to herself on social media, and how she developed her personal brand. We also get into whether the body positivity movement has gone too far, something that Emily has some fascinating insights into. It was such a pleasure to talk to Emily. She is just as she is on her blog and Instagram account disarmingly friendly, open, positive, and very frank. If you want to see real change in the fashion industry and true authenticity on social media, then follow her on her Instagram account at Emily Jane Johnston. She truly is an authentic person in a world that is often criticised as artificial. I hope you enjoy the episode. You grew up in the U.S., in North Carolina. I did. What was it like growing up in the South? It was the dream.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous to say that I, had, I feel like I had the best childhood, but I really feel like I did have the best childhood. Um, it was the sort of thing where my parents would say, go out and have fun, just be home before dark. And then they would never question whether or not you had shoes on your feet, whether or not you were going to play in a creek or going to a swimming pool. There were just no questions asked. They just trusted you. They trusted the environment and they knew that you'd be home okay. So I kind of had
0: a a freewheeling childhood. Sounds ideal. It was. It was. Yeah. And then when you were at school, did you have an idea of what you wanted to be when you grew up? No, in fact, I was laughing the other day because do
1: you remember those tests that you used to take in school that would determine what you were supposed to do afterwards? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What did yours tell you? Oh, I think it was something like I should be working in janitorial services, <laughs> if you can believe that. No, it was it was um, definitely customer service Based role mm. um, and I didn't know what to do with that I had two older brothers that had gone to the Naval Academy in the US and more or less their careers were going to be defined for them for the next 20 years mm. and I remember sitting in high school thinking oh my god I honestly have no idea what I want to do um, and came up with this idea that I loved animals so I wanted to be um, pre-med in school so I could get a veterinary school
0: afterwards and then
1: what did you end up studying? <laughs> well, so the whole pre-med notion lasted <laughs> halfway through organic chemistry. <laughs> and then um, I sat in on an art history class. I was actually just going to see one of my friends and I sat in on the last 20 minutes of the class. And I was a smitten kitten. I fell in love, hook, line, and sinker. I sat there and I thought, I don't understand how this is an actual major, that you get to sit and look at beautiful paintings all day and have someone explain to you what they all mean, and you research the background, and you get to know the artist. And it just, to me, sounded like the most ideal major in the world. I I just didn't think it would ever fly. And I remember calling my parents and thinking, there's no way in hell they're going to let me. Change my my major from pre med to art history, um, but I was pleasantly surprised. Fantastic! <laughs> yeah, and they were really uh, encouraging. And so halfway through my freshman year, wasn't that it wasn't that bad? I wasn't a senior changing, but halfway through my freshman year, I decided that I wanted to pursue passion instead of logic. Oh, good for you! <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And then after that, what was your first? proper well you know inverted commas proper job out, out of university
1: um, my first proper job was the first job i had in london
0: no way so yeah. you came straight from uni to
1: london yes so there was a program i don't know if it still exists today or if it does it's definitely in an altered form but there's a program back in 2002 called BUNAC. Mm-hmm. And it allowed for American students to come to England and work for six months. So you had all your paperwork and everything. You didn't have to worry about a visa. And, um, you could just have that six months over here and then go back to the U.S. and, and start what my dad likes to say, my real life, <laughs> because he was so convinced that I was basically just taking an extended vacation <laughs> for six months. And I just thought, I thought, you know, worst case scenario I'd end up working in a pub and just have an amazing six months um, Mm. over here and it didn't actually end
0: up playing out that way (laughs) so one thing led to another and here we are yeah exactly 16 (laughs) years later I'm still here (laughs) so what was your first job over
1: here um, so, I worked for an auction house. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the day, this might surprise a few people. Back in the day before email, um, I sent 323 letters across the pond to every gallery, auction house, um, who else was on the museum? Uh, that existed in the UK. And I more or less said that I was an American that was gonna be over here for six months. And I really wanted to get experience in working in a European arts facility and sent my CV, uh, my resume at the time. And I have all the letters that I got back. Almost every single um, gallery, museum, (laughs) or auction house sent me a letter back saying, thank you so much for your interest. Uh, but we are not employing anyone on a (laughs) six-month basis at this time. And it was just an amazing opportunity um, for me to get a bunch of names on paper. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I thought... I'm going to write – sorry, I've written to all these people, and when I get back over, when I come over, I will go and make sure I have their name now. I'm going to go look them up and chase it. So in my head, I really thought I'm going to give it everything that I have to work in the arts somehow in Europe because I have this amazing six-month, op- six-month opportunity. Um, and then I came over, and we moved over just before Christmas. So we moved over on December 5th, and
0: basically – What a time <laughs> to arrive in Europe. I
1: year. mean <laughs> – <laughs> the worst time in the world to arrive in London, um, and we nobody wanted to see any of. I moved over with a friend of mine from university. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to see us. They were all preparing for Christmas parties and to shut down for the year, and it just was a really uh, slow time. So we said, you know what? We'll play tourist for a month. We'll come over here. We'll have a really great time. We'll live on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches but we will experience London for everything that it is. And then we'll buckle down on January 5th when everybody comes back to the office and we'll find jobs. Um, And I got super lucky um, that on January 5th, the first day everybody was back in the office, I got two calls from two auction houses. That um, we're looking for maternity covers oh. so one in the um, catalog cataloging department for old master paintings uh, which was my specialty so I went and studied in Florence Italy uh, for yeah, yes so I studied all the Italian oh, wow. um, old masters so Renaissance was my passion and It was sort of a dream job. But then another auction house had asked me if I wanted to replace a maternity cover for the managing director's personal assistant. And in my head, I thought, well, it'd be great to be sat in a basement writing about old master paintings all day. But surely it would be better to be at the top with the person who's running the company and learning that. So I took that job.
0: And how did that turn out? Do you ever wish you'd taken the other? No.
1: No. Never, never a day. Um, what came after that, I don't think I could have ever anticipated in my wildest dreams, if I'm being completely honest. Oh, it was really? amazing. Yeah.
0: In terms of the the people you got to meet, the work you
1: got to do? Everything. Um, so the auction house I worked for did all the special commissions for the royal family. Oh, wow. So they had... When I joined, we had four royal warrants, so we worked with every um, part of the royal family here in England, and the people, obviously, that I got to meet through that are amazing. Um, and we were some, we were the first people to auction off Damien Hirst, I mean, it was it was an amazing place to be, and there was a lot happening, and it was also a very male-dominated environment, Um, and coming in as a female, who wasn't, who started out as an administrator and then swiftly moved into the PR side of things. It was an interesting place to be. Um, and I'd grown up with three brothers, so (laughs) I wasn't intimidated by it. I'm six foot two. I'm an American. (laughs) I think they were scared absolutely out of their minds when it came to me walking into a boardroom which really worked in my favor
0: and so how did you make that transition from uh, the PA role to PR um well this is a funny story about (laughs) coincidences I suppose (laughs) but they always are this is the thing the people I've spoken to it's been a mixture of being in the right place at the right time but also kind of putting yourself out there a bit as well yeah, I would say for me, it's 50-50 on
1: luck and naivety.
0: <laughs> because really, i don't, if you had asked me,
1: if I was living in America now at the age of 38, and you had said, do you want to go move to London for six months and see how it goes, I would tell you you're crazy. But because I was 22 and I didn't have any clue about what I wanted to do with my life, I just thought, what the hell, let's try it. Mm. Um, but yeah, so the funny story, um, two weeks after I joined the company, it was bought out mm-hmm. by a young Frenchman. He was devastatingly handsome. He'll probably listen to that and love hearing that. Um, and he met me and said, You don't belong in this role. You belong as a PR. And I said, I'm 22 years old. I've never done PR in my life. Um, and he and his business partner at the time had said, Don't worry. We're going to, you know, they, at the time at the time they were part of Christie's and they said, we're going to put you in with Christie's PR department. They're going to teach you everything that you need to know. And then you're going to come back over here and do it all. Um, and I did that. And I think I was doe eyed and, and a little bit scared, but I went in and I thought, okay, this is something I can do. How hard can it be to talk to journalists all day and pitch stories? Uh, <laughs> <hard>. I mean, <laughs> in retrospect, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but It was never something that was a career path for me. And I just thought, actually, I don't know what else I'm going to do. And I don't really know what I'm going to do when I get back to America. So why don't I just stick with this? And did you enjoy it? I loved it. Mm. I lived for it. I really did. I had so much fun. And I got to work with all of the old school legends in journalism. So all of the guys that were writing about the arts back in the early 2000s that were really – and when I say old school I mean old school these guys were I think a lot of them aren't still around now Um, they were in their late 60s they were the guys that I called them the two bottle lunch crew because I couldn't place a story without having two bottles of wine with them at lunch and (laughs) those (laughs) were the days (laughs) (laughs) exactly that doesn't happen so much anymore (laughs) But as a 22-23-year-old woman who's from America, who's from the South, who really didn't drink too much, that in itself was a learning curve. Um, and having to learn how to present yourself after having two bottles of wine and still be professional and still be able to talk. How do you do that? I mean, I I don't know how I did that. Seriously, how do you do that? (laughs) Even today, I think my dad was like, I I just don't understand. I used to talk to you after those lunches and it seemed like I I didn't even recognize my own daughter because I just had my stuff together and I have no idea how. (laughs) But it was amazing and I was really lucky that I met the right people that... Saw that I was really do-eyed and they didn't take advantage of it but they wanted mm. to help me and they wanted to steer me in a direction that would be helpful for my future. So I really feel like I fell into the right place at the right time with the right people.
0: Tell me, how did you start transitioning from a corporate PR role to, well, what you're doing now? Um, okay, this is...
1: Uh, this is a, always a hard one to, to graph out. Um, basically, I was doing PR. Um, I found that that wasn't fulfilling enough. So I went to my MD and I said, yeah, I can do PR. It's great. But I, I feel like I've sort of done that now and I've learned what I need to do. And it's not really challenging me. And in my head, I always thought I want to be someone who, when they go into the office actually achieve something throughout the day. Mm-hmm. I was a bit of a nerd. Um, and so I kept asking for more roles. Um, so I took over client services. I took over VIP client relations. And I just kept taking on all these things. And the more I took on, the more I thought, actually, is this the right thing for me? I didn't really know if it was just that I was getting bored or what was happening. But at the time... I had a lot of friends that were coming over from New York city who were going to London fashion week and they were coming over. We're all around the same age group and they were coming to shows and having to go home and do show reviews before to their hotel, to do show reviews before we could go out. So we would be sitting there and they'd be running the show reviews and they just weren't doing it fast enough for me. So I started helping them with the show reviews (laughs) so we could get out the door faster and then one of the girls just casually mentioned this whole thing of blogging, which in America, so this is back in 2009. So I think it was like 2000, 2000, 2007, 2008, where the blogging community got really big in the US. And it was something where girls were, were clearing six figures, approaching seven, and it was a genuine thing that you could do with your life. Whereas in the UK, we're still kind of dabbling. And for me, I'd always read this is gonna sound you're just expecting this to come out of my mouth right now I know it I'd always read Vogue (laughs) (laughs) so for me American Vogue was was the dream I would look at the pictures and read the articles and just have this it was a fantasy world it wasn't something that I ever thought I could be a part of it was something that existed in its own hemisphere and um, I, I, I guess it was Starting FFG was a way for me to be a part of that. And I never thought I could ever get my foot in the door. In fact, when I first moved to London, I tried to intern with London Fashion Week. I told them I would sweep floors for them. It's like, I will do anything. Please just let me in the door. Honestly, I will do anything you need done. And they basically just shut the door in my face. Mm. So in 2009, I started this blog. I modeled it on Perez Hilton. Um, Oh, yeah. Yep. So Perez was doing – this was before he started Coco Perez – and he was doing celebrity news. And he was putting out probably 10 to 20 articles a day or, or a blog post a day. And so I wanted to do the same thing. And my idea was that it was gonna be movements in the fashion world to so fashion news, announcements of new covers coming from magazines, new designers moving from one house to the other, um, what celebrities are wearing. So basically just kind of like things that you would talk to with your girlfriend about what's happening. Um, and I wrote it in a style where you would be talking to your girlfriend. And I was putting out between <laughs> 20 to 30 pieces of content a day.
0: Oh, my God. How do you... How do you <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was this yeah. while you were still doing your PR job? Or? Yes. And oh I
1: God. never, ever did it during the PR job. Yeah. So uh, this is where things got a little difficult because I truly, truly loved what I was doing. And I... I felt like I was really good at it. I didn't feel like it challenged me anymore. I think that was probably where this all came from, but I loved it. And I wasn't ever starting the blog with the idea that I would leave it. It was something that I could get home at night and sink my teeth into and really feel like I was doing something for myself. And again, this wasn't a time in the UK when anyone was making any money. So for me, I probably didn't make any money from the blog for the first two years that I did it, but I was sleeping three hours a night. So I was coming home, creating all the content, scheduling it to go up the following day. Or if it was, I started to get exclusives from LA, from New York, from Milan, from Hong Kong. I had my Blackberry set up with certain ringtones and I would sleep with it under my pillows so if something oh came God. in I could be the first person to publish it and it did become a bit about a race against time to see who could get it up first and then Perez Hilton launched Coco Perez which was kind of identical to Fashion Vogue and um yeah, and that that was an interesting time. But I just kept publishing and publishing and publishing. And then eventually the page views got so high that the people who were in the industry couldn't ignore me anymore. And that sort of took on a, t- a whole new level. Um, and I started going in and meeting with PRs from fashion houses. And, um, yeah, and then it just sort of snowballed from there.
0: So when did it get to that tipping point when you could quit your PR job and do... Blogging and content creation for for a living.
1: um So there is a very specific point. I think uh, I'm very lucky that I can look back. And I, a lot of people I talk to about that they don't have a specific point that they can pinpoint, and I, I do have a very specific point. Um, in 2011, I designed a bag for Coach with Reed Krakoff, and it was to launch the Bond Street store. So it was going to be their first flagship in the UK. And they'd asked me to design this bag that was going to be a blogger's bag. And it was, um, basically named like the modern woman's diaper bag (laughs) because it had sections in the bottom for your sneakers and for your, you know, digital SLR and your laptop and your iPad and everything. So it just had all these really cool compartments and it was a very preppy looking bag. And I think it was priced at 600, either 650 or 695 pounds a bag. And they sold out overnight. Oh, wow. Um, and a lot of that, which again, I'm very thankful for, and I feel very right place, right time, right people was because I have a lot of friends in print media from the blog. So every, I accepted every invitation to every dinner, every event. I went to the flipping opening of <laughs> because I wanted to be involved in this world so badly. And I met everyone. And because I was older, and I was meeting journalists that were the same age as me, I think there was a little bit more respect there because at the time there, you know, people in blogging were very young and I think they were thinking that it was something that was more of a hobby and the, there was this rumor that there were seven or eight people writing FFG at the time and it was just me. So there was this respect level, I think that was developed. So when the coach bag came out, I had amazing print coverage. Mm. Um, I had people taking it on ITV this morning. Bricksmith Start really supported me with that. It was in the Metro. It was, um, online everywhere. And so, yeah, it just was this little mini phenomenon that sold out. Unfortunately, it was also, because it was in the Metro, one of the people that works in my office decided to put it on my MD's desk and full disclosure I had told him that I was doing this in my free time I said I I'll never ever do it on company time because this is my job and this is something I'm doing for fun um and someone put a copy of the paper on his desk with a post in it that said D- does it occur to you that maybe Emily is doing her own PR and not RPR and Nice. Mm, yeah, um, I was very lucky that I had an MD who who respected who I was, who knew me well enough to know that I wasn't doing anything untoward, and he very very kindly said to me, "I think this is something you might want to go pursue." but there will always be a job here for you. So I was sort of given this opportunity to go and chase a dream that didn't feel so risky because I had a job if it all went pear-shaped in six months. And I don't know that I would have done that if I mm. hadn't had somebody saying, "Don't worry, you're not going to be living on the street," you know, in your Louis Vuittons for the <laughs> bottle of free champagne you got last week, um, and I don't, I don't feel like everybody was given, you know, has been given the opportunity. So again, just felt super, super lucky, mm. and um, and it was hard to go because just the year before, I'd been made the first female board director of the company the youngest ever board director of the company um, Fantastic. and it was a it was a hard thing to walk away from I think it, yeah. it will always feel hard it will feel like I've left my family a bit yeah <laughs>
0: mm. what were the main challenges for you in those early days when you had left your PR role behind and were building your business Main challenge is money.
1: <laughs> uh, I think that was the scariest thing for me. Freelance is so difficult. And I don't think anyone ever really, even though you hear it a 100 times and everyone in freelance will go, it's going to be tough. You don't know when money is going to come in. You don't know, you know, how often you get jobs. You have to be a great saver. And I thought, oh, don't be ridiculous. It will all be fine. And it's, it's such an up and down, it's a roller coaster. It really is a roller coaster of emotions, and a lot of that has to do with money.
0: Do you find, as I do, that when you tell people, you know, you, you have a blog, one of the first questions they ask you is, well, how do you make money? Oh, God, that's the only question I can ask.
1: <laughs> Nobody really cares what you write about. They're then, like, how do you make money doing it? That's,
0: and I always think if I said to them, and what are all your sources of income? You know, that would be totally inappropriate. Yeah, of course. And how much <laughs> did you make last
1: year trading stocks? I mean, it's not – you just don't
0: ask it, do you? But I think okay. it's because it's this new thing. It's an unknown to so many people. I think they still think – a lot of people still think it's, you know – girls in their bedrooms typing typing a diary
1: (laughs) well I mean it's not far off the mark to be honest as far as sitting in your bedrooms you know (laughs) typing away for years I was laying on my bed typing on my computer and I did feel like I and and I think for me when I was saying to the general public I'm a blogger this is my title this is what I do I still felt like I was a teenager living in my parents basement typing Mm -hmm. a a diary daily Mm -hmm. and I I was never actually that person as in I was never typing a diary for the First three years that it was live, nobody even knew that it was me really until I did the coach launch. Um, and unless you were in the industry, you didn't know that I was FFG. My picture was very rarely ever on the blog, it was in print, but that was about it when I did magazine features. And then, um, yeah, it was I don't know why, but for so long, I felt really ashamed to tell people that's what I did for a living.
0: So I kept mine really secret for ages and I I told a few very very few people close to me that I was actually doing it because I was kind of embarrassed now I tell everyone but um I was really embarrassed at the start but do you still call yourself a blogger um it depends who I'm talking to. Because yeah. so, even still, to some people, just say I'm a lawyer because I'm still doing a little bit of that. Yeah. But, um. <laughs> just a
1: little bit casual <laughs> mention though. <there. laughs> for like one of the most respected careers, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> in my spare time. <laughs> yeah, you're a blogger full time. I just dabble in the law.
0: <laughs> Matches, <Merges> acquisitions. Um,
1: <laughs> Love it.
0: Um, what about you? Because you do so, well, you do so much more
1: than blogging now. I do, but I still, that's still the first thing I say when Mm -hmm. people say, What do you do for a living? And it's actually the first thing anybody says about me when. Any, I mean, this is what I've been told. Who knows what other people say about me? But for the most part, when people ask my parents, when people ask my close friends, what is it that, that I do? Blogger is the first word that comes out. Mm. And these days, things like, I feel like influencer. I know everyone's saying it. So I'm just a broken record, but it's not a good word. I, I don't it, like that. No, term. I mean, it makes you sound like you just think you are God's gift to the world, doesn't it? Mm. Um, and I don't, I, I, it's, this is going to sound ultimately so cheesy, but I just rather be known as someone who's just kind of like a good girlfriend. He's just talking to a lot of girlfriends and that's just, cause that's how I feel. I mean, I answer every DM that I get on Instagram. I answer every email. I have people send me pictures of three different dresses that are thinking about wearing to a wedding and which one, and should I accessorize it this way? And I really live for that because I feel like actually it's not just me speaking into some black void. It's real people out there that are reading it and taking in knowledge and then the more I learn about them the more I can translate that into my own copy mm-hmm. and make it relevant because I think in the beginning we didn't have all this information and Instagram wasn't around so people weren't as likely to just kind of send send a note here and there based on a story um, and now I feel like everyone's so verbal <laughs> so oh, yeah I mean I spend the majority of my time answering readers which I love doing I really really truly love it I mm-hmm. feel like it's it's connecting people. And it's really fulfilling, actually, as cheesy as that's going to come across.
0: (laughs) So is Instagram your uh, main uh, social media platform? Are you on Twitter? I'm
1: on Twitter. So I was on Twitter first and foremost. And um, the way that goes is because fashion is what it is. Instagram is the platform. Mm. Um, And I I hung tight to Twitter because I had 64,000 followers. I became verified and... Because it was a news site, that was the number one way for me to to aggregate content. And um, with Instagram coming out, people just migrated. And the people who were following me on Twitter, who probably still are today, are mostly looking at what I'm doing on Instagram and communicating through that platform. Mm. So I think it's still great. I think it's still useful for news. But because I'm no longer doing news, it doesn't really apply as much to me. Um I do find everyone kind of jumps on there when Instagram is down <laughs> so and that's like the number one place you find out about news uh with Instagram failing, but yeah it's uh, Facebook I find is kind of a dead source these days yeah um, not I don't in the beginning that was great again, I felt like all of these platforms you put stuff out and that there weren't these crazy algorithms, there weren't, you know, pay-to-play platforms in place and your content really did get shared and people saw it and they clicked through. And I think the hardest part these days is making sure your content is seen by the people who want to see it. And I find that that is the biggest challenge. And even on Instagram, so many people will write to me going, I haven't seen your content in days. And what can you do? You just have to say, I'm really sorry. It's the
0: algorithm. The algorithm hates me. No, it hates everyone. (laughs) It hates everyone except for like five. I don't know.
1: know who those people are but they are blessed <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's I just I feel like it's the number one topic of conversation at the moment when you go to social events is the algorithm and frankly I just you know you, you can't be a slave to it I think you, it. you put out the best that you have to offer and you hope for the best and that's yeah
0: how I roll <laughs> what can you do <laughs> exactly <laughs> and what's been the most unexpected thing that has come out of your career in general
1: or yeah. from the blog
0: from well from your, the blog social media
1: i think probably the most unexpected thing has been the friendships God, I'm I'm like total cheese ball today. <laughs> I really feel so cheesy saying that. But truly, I was joking the other day that if I ever got married, every single girl that would be standing up there with me that I would have met on social media. Yeah. Because really, the people that I call if I'm in trouble, the people if I that I call if I'm having a bad day are my colleagues. And because I don't work in an office, my colleagues are other bloggers, they're other Instagrammers, they're people that I travel around the world with and that we help each other take pictures and we sit there and we talk about stupid things like the algorithm or how, you know, when people say they're going to pay you in 30 days, it's actually more like 120. And it's all the stuff that's water cooler chat that you would have in a normal nine to five that we don't have. So we have entire WhatsApp groups of people that are all doing the same thing. And we talk to each other Mm -hmm. and you're sort of, you become each other's support network.
0: Yeah, that's so important, I think, when you're freelancing, because it can feel like a bit of a solitary pursuit from time to time. Oh, yeah. I think that's probably the hardest part um, and what I wasn't prepared
1: for. So obviously, I really like to talk. <laughs> and um, and I loved that being in an office. I absolutely loved it. I was never at my desk. Um, I was always roaming around the office and talking to people. And I really felt like that made for a better career, made for me a better person. And... Uh, it was the one thing I was really surprised that no one ever mentioned. So before I went freelance, nobody ever said that Every, money was talked about so much, but no one ever said how lonely you're going to be. And the first couple of months I really struggled with that. And I had my TV on in the background because it was so quiet in my flat. It was just me and the sound of typing on my computer uh, and the occasional ambulance or something. Uh, but Yeah, I I would say that that's probably the number one thing I say now to people, is that it's such a lonely pursuit, and that can be really difficult if you're not ready for it.
0: What's been the best advice that someone's given you, uh, either in life or your career, that you've really taken on board?
1: Trust your gut. Never, Mm. ever ignore your gut. And I have found that that has served me very well. Mm. Uh, and I think it's hard to find. Uh, maybe people have a harder time discovering what that feeling is and learning how to listen to it. But I think, I, and again, maybe I just got lucky, but I had the right person tell me at the right time, and and I could feel it. I could feel when things aren't right. And um, instead of burying that feeling down inside me, I would go, "Okay, wait, hold on." Obviously the universe is telling me that I need to sit up and take note of this and analyze what's going on and don't worry about the haters. Yeah. <laughs> I was just talking about that with a good friend this morning uh, and we were talking, well, I think I was mainly talking, but saying, well, we we're talking about people in high school and how things have changed over the years. Cause my 20th high school reunion was in October. Did you go? No. Oh. <laughs> um, but we we're talking about, how things have changed, and how the bullies and things that were really horrible to you when you were in high school, and you just thought it was the be all and end all of like, oh, I'm going to fail in life, and then you look back, and you're like, where are those people now? Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that I think I have a niece at the moment who's really suffering with being bullied in school, and as much as you, I mean, I, as much as I wanted to sink in, I know she's kind of going, oh, Auntie M, <laughs> you think you know everything, um, and. I just repeatedly say to her, these are people that will amount to nothing and what they're giving you is a fire. So I'm super, super thankful for the fact that I was bullied in high school for being so tall because I feel like they lit something underneath me that has fueled me and I'm 38 and I'm still working off of it. So I really am quite grateful for that. I think it's hard to see that when you're 17 mm. and people are joking about how like long your legs are and how you're six inches taller than every other guy in, in school. Um, but in retrospect, I'm super thankful and trying to say that to a 14 year old is like, Mm. no and, uh-
0: <laughs> not happening <laughs> so how do you stay true to yourself on social media when there's so much pressure to conform to a certain image to have the perfect image of the perfect life how do you stay true to you uh, i think
1: First of all, well, you're looking at me, so you know that <laughs> yeah. I'm not the average fashion blogger. Mm-hmm. I'm six foot two. Um, I sort of straddle plus size and straight size. So I'm all the, all of a sudden, I'm in a, in a demographic that doesn't really even exist in the media, but it exists for over half of the country. So for me... I was, when I first got on social media, I was looking for other people that were like me. And then I realized there weren't so many. So in my head, in my business head, I was going, okay, there aren't so many. So actually this is a good thing because it's an opportunity, But then in my heart, I was thinking, this is a really sad thing because actually, you know, if that, if 50% of the world isn't being represented on here, 50% of the Western world isn't being represented on here, what is that saying? And it really was such a spectrum, you you know, and the the super thin models, I just, I went through a time where I just thought, I'm never really going to fit into this, am I? Um, And then again, I'd come back to this, but there isn't anything out there. So there needs to be more out there. So I need to see this. And I, when I jumped on social media, I started following all these supermodels. I was following all the designers. I was following all the bloggers in America that were with the really big bloggers. And I probably in the beginning was following like 1500 people, and I was looking at social media, and I was feeling really bad about myself. And I was flipping through all these pictures of these beautiful women in bikinis in Jamaica and and these designers that were featuring these beautiful women on their catwalks and Vogue that was featuring beautiful actresses and all that. And it was just beautiful, 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 beautiful. And uh, slowly I just started to unfollow people. And I just mm. thought – and I set up – um A guideline for myself, which was if I saw any picture that made me feel bad about myself, I immediately unfollowed that account. It doesn't matter if they were my best friend. And I've had Mm -hmm. massive wars over this because I feel like social media is a window you create for yourself of the world and you are a hundred percent in control of that. And everyone that's always like, Oh, social media is so bad. So bad. I'll say, I think you really need to analyze why it is so bad for you because I meet so many people who are saying social media is so incredible. And it's really given me this new point of view on the world and this new kind of enhanced self-esteem. And those are the people that I think are doing social media, right? Mm. So I will always say to people unfollow religiously, like don't edit, edit, edit your life, just completely edit your life. And social media, you're in control. So I feel like there's no excuse. I feel Mm. like that was a really roundabout way to answer that question. (laughs) Does that actually answer your question? It does. (laughs) How do I stay true to myself? Um, So yeah, so I feel like for me, I, I really was unfollowing people. And then I also, with the point of staying true to myself, I was unfollowing people that I felt were swaying me in a direction that wasn't True. So, if somebody, I felt like a lot of my content started to look like other people's content, and when that started to happen, I kind of went, "Uh oh, no, no, no," and I would gravitate away from that or re- move away from that and gravitate towards something that inspired me, but that didn't mold. Me. So, does that make sense? It inspired mm-hmm. me, but different didn't mold me. So, my content wasn't a reflection. My content was something that was simply you know, given a new. Fresh, you know, approach because of these people.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I think also this is just me, but because being a bit older now, getting into social media, I can take it for what it is, and I know that these images of you know perfect bodies in perfect outfits. Is not a true representation of that person's life. There are still okay. moments where they're going to be on the sofa eating pizza with a hangover.) <laughs>
1: Why are we not sharing those moments? (laughs) I (laughs) (laughs) I do on stories. (laughs) I mean, that's where stories is amazing, isn't it? Because now you can have this perfect grid. Yeah. And then stories is just a reflection of what your actual life is like. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I love doing that. And I, when I first started doing stories, I really tried to manicure them and make them look professional. And I would kind of mess up. And I was like, actually, that video is so much more brilliant of me not being able to get my words out correctly (laughs) than if I went through and did something right. Because that is actually... Who I am in everyday life is somebody mm-hmm. who has trouble getting words out of their mouth without tripping over them. Yeah. And if social media is what I think it should be, then it's supposed to be a reflection of who we really are. So for me, that that's worked. And I think mm-hmm. it, it does share my personality more. Whereas the grid, I feel like a still image, it's hard to really kind of gauge who someone is. So stories, I'm just a huge fan of.
0: Yeah. And through both your stories and your Instagram you get a, I get a really, I mean, I think everyone who follows you gets a really clear image of what you're about and what your personal brand is. Was, did you set out consciously at the start to develop a personal brand or did it kind of come about more organically? I think it came about organically
1: because again, I started with news. Mm-hmm. Um, and the shift came when I hired an agent. So I, um, in, oh God, I think it was 2000. 2000- 2014 was when things rolled over into this whole Kardashian voyeuristic um, intention of the general public. So everyone wanted to know about more, wanted to know more about me. And so when I was putting together the blog post, I would do, I was still doing the news, but then maybe every like 10th or 20th blog post, it would be something a little more personal. So it would be my own photographs and it would be an experience. Still wouldn't really be pictures so much of me, But it was the numbers that were rolling in off the back of that where my agents went, okay, so this is what needs to happen. You need to be more about you and you are your brand. Whereas I have spent my entire career, which is the past decade, PRing other people. So I was massively uncomfortable. I'd never set out for this to be about me. Um, I, the first few times I stepped in front of the camera, I was very lucky. I met my photographer on Twitter. Um, and he is one of my best friends and has been for 10 years now. And we shot together for the first time for an anthropology campaign. And I am so lucky that I had him because I tripped over wearing heels twice. <laughs> <laughs> Ran my head into a wall trying to do that. Um, was so uh, like Bambi walking. Like I didn't know what I was doing. And he coached me through it. And I've worked with him ever since. He takes all my photographs when I'm in London. And um, Yeah. So he was helping me with that. And then my agents were going, well, you're never going to make any money doing these because you only make money on advertising and that's a sliding scale. People aren't paying any money for that anymore. So you have to become the face of your brand. And that was a really, yeah, like I said, a difficult transition and not something I ever planned for. So how that has evolved is I have become, I've never been skinny. Um, I'm a big boned girl. I come from a big boned family and it's never, ever been something that I haven't felt good about. I've never really sat down and gone, oh, I don't like who I am and I'm depressed. And I've just always been a really super confident person, but I think it's because I grew up with three brothers um, <laughs> and I thought actually I'd like to take that on board and I would like to be able to share that if I can with other people because so many of my girlfriends when I was out with them, the first thing that would ever come out of their mouth about an outfit was like, oh, I just feel really fat or I just feel like this doesn't make me look good. And I would sit there and go, I'm looking at a size eight body that is absolute perfection right now and I can't believe these words are coming out of your mouth. So that kind of influenced the platform mm. that I was building. And then all of a sudden I became this, like, captain of body positivity, <laughs> which in itself has taken a bit of a dark turn.
0: Really? Yes.
1: Um so? Well, I think – I wrote an article about this a few months ago. Um, I think now this whole body positivity movement has made people feel bad if they feel bad about themselves
0: <laughs> – if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, uh, I know exactly what you mean. So yeah. you, the,
1: all of a sudden, this movement that was supposed to be about, yes, we love our bodies, kind of turned into this, if you say anything bad about yourself, you're a bad person. And for me, you know, I think it's fair to say, I, you know what, I don't really like my thighs today. My thighs are a bit jiggly. I'm 38 years old. I've got cellulite. But it doesn't mean I don't love myself. But if you said, you know... You could sign a piece of paper tomorrow and be cellulite free. I would sign the piece of paper. You know, it's not. I you got don't, that bit
0: of paper? <laughs> I know. It's like who has that
1: paper? Um, but I don't think it's a bad thing to want to improve yourself. I don't think it's a bad thing to be unhappy with things. Um, I. It's just you're only human. That's the thing. Exactly, and I don't understand where we went from being body positive to hold on you're not allowed to say anything negative mm. i think it's just gone it's like everything else it's just gone too far
0: yeah and i i remember actually was it one of your posts where you were saying People were all, in a way, putting pressure on you. Why don't you put up a swimsuit? Sorry. Why
1: don't you put up a swimsuit photo? Not a swimsuit photo. A bikini photo. Oh no! It wasn't even. Let's see. In a one piece. It was last summer, and I think that's probably the most hits I've ever had on a piece. Was on Mm -hmm. that piece. It got shared. It went viral on Twitter. Uh, it did very well. And I wrote that at three o'clock in the morning, sitting on my bed on the island, because I had had so many haters send me, I think some, one of, um, uh, one of the, all size brands like ASOS or something that carry from a size 0 to a size 26 had posted a picture I don't remember who it was but they posted a picture of me and the trolls had come and said this is ridiculous she doesn't represent our community and I just didn't really understand what is this our community first of all can we have a a definition of that and also again with the whole body positive thing we're supposed to be about positivity and you're attacking me because I don't want to put a picture of myself in a bathing suit and that has nothing to do with my body it's because my dad follows me on Instagram and I don't think my dad needs to see me in a bathing suit that the whole world is also viewing and that is 100% what that was Mm. I'm very proud to go out in a bikini I just don't feel like the whole world needs to see me in it yeah that's it yeah. so yeah i ended up writing the article and i was pissed i was yeah. like you know what i'm going to talk about this and the response i got from it was more than i ever anticipated from kind of a half ass like laying in bed just being really upset and typing away and then i just i didn't even re reread it i didn't spell check it or look for any kind of grammatical errors i just published it and i was like i've had enough i have had enough mm. um and i'm i rarely am like that
0: <laughs> no is it fair enough because i think um Fair enough for women who think it's empowering to, uh, you know, show images and show that they're confident in their body in a, in a bikini. But not all women feel like they have to do that to feel empowered. No. You know, you can feel empowered by wearing an amazing, you know, um, power suit. Or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. And also, I'm about clothes. Mm. So my
1: whole shtick is that I'm talking about clothes. I'm talking about how to cover yourself. So me doing lingerie, I'm not saying I will never, ever do these things. But I think probably while my dad is alive... It's not going to happen. And I'm hoping my dad's around for another 20 years. So me coming out as a 58-year-old <laughs> in my first bikini probably isn't going to happen either. So let's just go ahead and say that's not going to happen. And I just feel like, you know what, I've always said that anybody that comes online as a personality or whatever you're doing, I think if your goal is to be something in social media, that you have to define a line where 90% of you is, you know, you give to the general public, and then 10% you keep back for yourself. And that has to be yours, come hell or hot water, you will not cross that line. And for me, that's been a very defined line from the beginning. Mm. Um, I've had book deals cancelled because I refuse to talk about certain things. Um, I've had relationships that have gone a bit funny because the men have been upset because I didn't want to publicize them, um, or showcase them in any way. Mr. FFG has been a myth since 2009. (laughs) Um, and I, again, I never say never, but I feel like it served me very well to have that. From myself, from mm. all my own. And I really enjoy that. And I think it's kept me kind of sane. And um, there's so many like Instagram couples out there and stuff, and it just makes me cringe a little bit. Um, because I just think you, you've given everything that you are to a social network, and that doesn't seem healthy.
0: Yeah, I agree. So the questions I always ask all my guests are first, what is success for you success for me is just happiness I know
1: that's just a lame answer but I don't have very high standards there I think as long as I wake up smiling I feel successful and the minute that that doesn't happen it's time for a change of course
0: hmm. and then your travel tip for where you're from Or where your family's originally from? Um,
1: So I'm from Beaufort, South Carolina. And my top tip would be to go to the Old Bull Tavern, which is probably the most surreal thing for me to say, because I'm in the South and I'm still going back to something that is basically a British pub. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it is the most spectacular restaurant um, and also low country produce. So I could go on for days about all the good food in Beaufort, South Carolina. But it is one of the most charming places on Earth. Yeah. Really is so charming.
0: Well, I was saying to you earlier, the more I see of your hometown and your, your, you know, parents' place and especially your golden retrievers. Yes. <laughs> Um it just makes me want to go to South Carolina. Well, and I said absolutely you're stunning. absolutely welcome. There's a guest
1: house waiting for you, honestly. Truly. Mr. truly and Mrs. Johnson, I'm on my way. <laughs> oh my god, they love it. Are you kidding me? They're so I mean, this is it's such a southern thing to be to welcome guests with open arms. And um all my friends laugh over here because the first six months I lived in London, I got on the tube every morning and said good morning. <laughs> and everyone looked at me like I had a mental problem, and I just was like, I don't understand. I remember calling. I don't understand why no one will talk to me (laughs) Um, but we love guests we love sharing people our part of the world and it's such a magical part of the world that you just can't help but want to share it with everybody
0: right next holiday to the US I'm heading down south amazing amazing (laughs) Emily it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast thank you so much thank you for having me Thank you for listening to Freedom Hunters. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It will give the series a boost and help other people find it. And you can find out more about what I'm passionate about on my website, SecondSister.com or Instagram at Suzanne Delahunty. Tune in on the first of every month when another inspiring guest will be sharing their story of how they found freedom in a career that they love.